If you would, please open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2. We've been studying the book of Ruth, which tells the story of how a woman from Moab came to be a part of the people of Israel and an ancestor of David, and thus of Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. In the passage we studied last Sunday, Ruth had asked Naomi for permission from Naomi, her mother-in-law, to work in the fields as a gleaner. It was the beginning of the barley harvest, we are told at the end of chapter 1. Naomi gives her permission, and Ruth, as we read in verse number 2, turns out finds herself working in the field belonging to Boaz. Boaz had been introduced previously in verse number 1 as a relative uh, on uh, Elimelech's side, sort of uh, an in-law, if you wish, of Naomi. I want to revisit the matter of gleaning because it will come up again in our passage today. There are several passages in the Torah that talk specifically about gleaning. In Leviticus 19, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. And then in Leviticus 23, which is surprising because it's already been mentioned, it is mentioned again, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. And then this we would expect in Deuteronomy chapter 24, because Deuteronomy is sort of the second, <coughs> if you would, the second telling of the law. Deuteronomy 24:19. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. So I said last week, it seems to me that the Lord's command really reeks of inefficiency. And frankly, it doesn't sound like good stewardship. Why shouldn't I go back over my field again or beat the branches of the olive trees again or go over the vines again? If, in fact, this is the field the Lord has given me and this is the crop that the Lord has caused to grow, shouldn't I make the most of it? Am I not being a bad steward if I don't make the most of the opportunity given me? We need to be reminded, and here we are told, our survival does not depend on ourselves. Are we to work like Ruth? Absolutely. Are we to be good stewards of what we have been given like Boaz? Yes. Are we to be careful with what we have? Yes to these questions and more that might come up. But we must not forget that our survival does not depend upon ourselves. What we find in Ruth and Boaz are examples of how we are supposed to live. We are, in fact, to work for our daily bread. We are to share with open hands with those in need. But we need to be reminded that these things come from the hand of God. And thus we are instructed to pray, give us this day our daily bread doesn't mean we stop working. It means that we understand that it is not by our work alone that we are provided with food. 
In the passage we studied last Sunday, we saw two conversations. The first conversation is between Boaz and his harvesters, the second between Boaz and Ruth. And rather than reviewing them, I would simply point out two things. First of all, the fact that Ruth is a foreigner is emphasized. If you look back at verse number two, when Ruth asked Naomi for permission, and Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain. Um, I mean, at this point in the story, don't you think it's enough that we just have her identified as Ruth? Um, and yet the storyteller calls her Ruth the Moabitess. What is the narrator doing? What is the storyteller doing? It is worth noting that the references to Ruth as Ruth the Moabitess come after she gets to Bethlehem. When she's in Moab, obviously she's a Moabitess, that's where she's from. But once she enters into Judah and she lives in Bethlehem with Naomi, her ethnicity becomes an issue. It becomes a factor in the story. I think the author wants to remind us that Ruth was an outsider. She was not from that place. And as an outsider, she was vulnerable. Technically speaking, she had the protection of the law, but in reality, as an outsider, a few would expect that they would have such protection. When Boaz asked his harvesters, who is this woman who's, who's gleaning? And the first thing they say, I mean, what is the first thing that comes out of their mouths? She is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. This is who she is. And thus, we should not be surprised that Boaz says to her, I have told my men not to touch you. As I mentioned last week, elsewhere in the Old Testament, this verb means to beat violently, to inflict injury, or to have sexual relations with. And Boaz is clear, this is not to happen. Just because she is Ruth the Moabitess, she's an outsider, she's vulnerable, don't take advantage of her. She is not to be touched. And what Ruth hears, and I think rightly so, is grace, undeserved favor. Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? And there it is again. She is from Moab. The second thing I would remind you from last week is Boaz's blessing that he pronounces on her in verse number 12. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Many Christians, and I would put myself in this category, are suspicious of those who seek to do good for the sake of a reward. Your motives are really highly suspicious if, in fact, you're doing it to be blessed by God, to be rewarded or repaid. And yet, Boaz seems fairly clear that he wants the Lord to repay and richly reward Ruth for what she has done. Last week, we saw that there is a difference between what we might call arbitrary rewards and proper rewards. Arbitrary rewards have, no, in fact, no connection with our actions. It's not as though we did something good and then we are rewarded, just sort of out of the blue, for reasons we cannot explain, we are rewarded. That somehow God blesses us, he bestows grace upon us, um, and there's no connection that we know of to anything that we have done. Proper rewards, on the other hand, is if I have done that which is right and receive some benefit from it, that we sort of understand. And I read to you from Matthew 10, anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. 
However, what is a prophet's reward and what is a righteous man's reward? What is a proper reward? Well, that is in God's hands. And I would remind you that the greatest reward God can give us is our relationship with him. The Lord said to Abraham, I am your exceeding great reward. It's not money. It's not position. It's not getting the things we want. It is, in fact, God himself. And whether they be arbitrary or proper, all rewards from God are undeserved. They are gracious in nature. The context of these rewards, and you see it in verse number 12, is in fact covenant. Boaz refers to the Lord, the God of Israel. God had entered into covenant with Israel. The covenant was God's choice. He initiated the whole business. It is because of his grace. And as I mentioned last week, Obedience to the law was not the source of blessing. If you obey the law, you get blessed. But it augments a blessing already given, being in relationship and covenant with God. The fact that they were in relationship with God, in fact, that is the blessing. And anything in addition is just sort of added on to that. Boaz assumes that this is the case for Ruth, because he continues, Under whose wings you have come to take refuge? It's an expression we find in the Old Testament to express protection and provision. But the underlying assumption here that Boaz does not say is that there is, in fact, a covenant relationship, that Ruth has come to be a part of the people of God. Today, the story continues. In fact, the conversations continue. If you would, look at verses 14, 15, and 16. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. First, the conversation with Ruth continues, um, showing hospitality. He instructs her to join the harvesters for lunch. Um, this is probably sometime later in the day. It's time for the noon, noonday meal. And Ruth is, if you wish, promoted, in quotation marks, from being a gleaner to being a member of the family. There is disagreement among scholars about what is offered. Bread, we know, is a staple of Middle Eastern diets. The wine vinegar and the roasted grain, we're not so clear on. But what we should focus on, I think, is not those details, but the reality that she is no longer an outsider. That she is now treated as part of the family. She sits down with the harvesters. And she ate all she wanted and had some left over. After the meal, Boaz continues the conversation with the harvesters. He does not instruct them. He gives them orders. I would say two negative, negative at the beginning and at the end, and then two positive. Don't embarrass her. Pull some stocks for her. Leave them for her to pick up. Don't rebuke her. As I said, two are negative and two are positive. The first negative, even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. 
one could make a case that if in fact she is gleaning between the sheaves, she is sort of breaking the rules of gleaning. Gleaning is seen to be um, something that is done on the outer edges of the field. If you remember from Leviticus 19, it speaks of not harvesting to the edges of one's field. So one would expect while everyone else, the harvesters are working in the center of the field, that the gleaners would be sort of on the periphery, on the outskirts. Boaz's harv- uh, harvesters could in fact embarrass Ruth by saying, listen, you don't belong here. You need to get over to the edge of the field. That's where the gleaners belong. But Boaz will have none of it. Instead, he gives two positive commands, pull some stalks for her, leave them for her to pick up. Here we hear the, the, the generosity, the wonderful generosity on the part of Boaz. Um, I don't think any of us use the King James anymore, at least during the service. But it is in the King James that we have this wonderful expression, handfuls of purpose. Let fall also some of the handfuls of purpose for her. That is, on purpose, you are to drop grain that she might be able to pick it up. They are to deliberately leave things for her to pick up. And so the second rebuke comes along, don't rebuke her. Second command. I think there's a powerful lesson to be learned here. There is no place for legalism in the faith of the people of God. There is right and wrong. Let's not, let's not be confused about that. But the law, which was graciously given, has at its heart a relationship, a covenant of generous love. God has brought his people into a relationship, and the law is intended to safeguard that. And as they obey the law, the relationship deepens and is enriched. So, consider the laws with regard to gleaning. I've read the three passages involved. I think that they are clear enough. That's, in fact, why I've gone over them again. That nothing is said about feeding gleaners. Never are God's people told, okay, people can glean in your fields, and, by the way, you need to feed them at lunchtime and maybe give them a snack before they go home at the end of the day. Nothing is said about leaving handfuls of purpose for them that you're supposed to pull out stocks so that people have something to pick up. But we need to remember that the law is an external code. It is not merely that, however, that somehow if we do the external things, then, then we've, we've done the right thing. The law is to be understood as involving relationship, a covenant relationship with God. And it is to organize, if you wish, and to order the lives of God's people. They are his people. Okay, Keeping the law doesn't make them his people. They are his people. That's a done deal. He's entered into covenant with them. And now, as his people, this is how they are supposed to live. When we separate the law, the commandments, from the covenant relationship, what we end up with is legalism. And in fact, we find this during the time of the exile and then the 400 silent years uh, with the rise of the Pharisees and various groups, that they focus on the law 
and not the covenant relationship with God. And they become legalists of the highest order. They should have known better. They should have known better. In Matthew 22, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, a Pharisee, okay, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. See, everyone in Israel knew this. In Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. The Israelites knew this. The law isn't simply an external code and then if you fulfill that, then everything is fine. It is, in fact, a reflection that you are in relationship with God. God has graciously extended covenant to you and you belong to his people. And what I see in Boaz is not a legalistic adherence to the laws of gleaning, but a graciousness in obeying the law. Because he is obeying the law with regard to gleaning, no question. But he goes beyond what the law says, what the law requires. The law says, don't go along the edges. That's for the gleaners. But Boaz allows her to come into the middle of the field and he feeds her lunch to boot and gives her extra food. In verses 17 to 23, we have his generosity measured, if you wish, and reported. Look at verse number 17. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening, then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. Perhaps it reflects a flaw in my thinking, or my character, or both. But I'm struck by the fact that Ruth kept working until evening. Boaz had already been quite generous to her, but she keeps working. Could it be that my problem is that I somehow imagine that generosity requires nothing on the part of the recipient? Boaz had generously provided Ruth with an opportunity, but Ruth had to work to take advantage of that opportunity. She did not work to get the opportunity, but once she was given the opportunity, she worked quite hard. And at the end of the day, literally, she threshed the barley she had gathered. That is, she beat the grain to separate the husk from the kernel of grain inside. And those of you who have seen this, this is hard work in and of itself. But it would make her journey back to Naomi a bit easier because all the husk, all the chaff would have been fallen, had fallen away and she would go home primarily with the grain. And there was plenty to carry. It amounted to about an ephah. Um, if you Google this, or if you look in various books, you will not find a standard answer for how much an ephah is. It is an ancient uh, measurement, and so there is a variety of uh, opinions as to what it means. The ESV says three-fifths of a bushel or 22 liters. Someone has 35 liters. One has 5.9 gallons. 
and one putting it in weight is 30 pounds or 13 kilos. To be honest, we don't frankly know, but I would say that the amount was considerable. And I think that's the point. In the same way that we don't know about the wine vinegar and the roasted grain and all that stuff, all the details, the point is Boaz fed her as he did his harvesters. And here, we don't know the exact amount that she took home, but it was a considerable amount showing again the generosity of Boaz. The story continues, verse 18. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. We should, not, we should take note, we should not be surprised that not only did Ruth bring back what she had gathered, what she had gleaned, she also brought back what had, she had left over from the noonday meal. Well, her mother-in-law is quite amazed. And so she asked, verse 19, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. At this point, we might stop and think, what did Naomi do all day? As Ruth is doing backbreaking work as a gleaner, no doubt she was at home wondering, how is Ruth doing? I wonder if she found a place where she could glean. I wonder if she's okay. I wonder if somehow something bad has happened to her. How did things go for her? And now at the end of the day, Ruth is back and she has an ephah of barley. And so the questions just fly out. I think this is what the storyteller wants us to get a sense of. Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Um, the questions are really one and the same, but they just sort of tumble, tumble out one after the other. And they reflect her excitement. One writer says, such delight was certainly warranted. This was the first good thing to happen to Naomi since chapter one. Well, I would argue that Ruth going back home with her was sort of a good thing too, but this is certainly a turnaround. This is something amazing that has happened to her. And so we hear Naomi pronounce a blessing. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. She doesn't even know it's Boaz yet, but she pronounces this blessing. And why the pronouncement? I think that Naomi is keenly aware that Ruth must have had help. There's no way she could have gathered this much barley on her own without some form of assistance, some outside help. And for such help and such generosity, she pronounces a blessing on him. We saw in the series, uh, when we looked at bless, blessed and blessing, that to bless means to bestow something good, the bestowing of good. And this is how we generally find it used in Scripture. The context determines the character of what is imparted. But one thing we need to be clear about is that the Creator is the source of all blessing. And as creatures, we are the recipients. And so she looks to God at this point that God would, as a creator, bestow something good on this man because he has helped Ruth in her work as a glean. The answer comes, then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I work with today is Boaz, she said. And this, the name of Boaz, triggers two additional pronouncements. Verse number 20 the Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. The Lord bless him. Well, this makes sense. The creator is the source of all blessing. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. 
The first one makes sense. The second one perhaps troubles us a bit because who is the he and the his that is referred to here? I find the ESV to be very helpful here. May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi sees the gracious hand of God acting through the gracious actions of Boaz. There is no sense in which the grace and kindness of God override human agency. Rather, it is through human agency that God's gracious kindness is received. In the passage that Zib read to us last week from 2 Corinthians 8, a reading from the New Testament, Paul points to the grace of God, which results in his people, God's people, showing grace. Um, Verse 9 in 2 Corinthians 8, and then I'll read verse 7. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And then verse 7, But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. You will notice, and I don't know if you've been listening as Ziv has read, and next Sunday as well, is the passage is about giving and not giving in church. I've heard enough sermons on giving to missions and tithing taken from these passages, and they're completely wrong. What Paul is talking about is a collection for the saints in Jerusalem, for the poor Christians in Jerusalem because of persecution who do not have enough. So he has been going throughout the Gentile churches, collecting money for those who are in need. And I think what Paul is saying to the Corinthians, who are probably one of the wealthier churches, to believe in God's grace commits us to be gracious to others. If we believe that God has been gracious to us, then it commits us to hard work in his service for one another. Faith in the gracious provision of God is matched by a concern to express that grace in our personal dealings with others. If, in fact, we really believe God has been gracious to us, then there should be this deep concern that we be gracious to others. And in particular, for those in need, for the disadvantaged. This is what we see in Boaz. This is what we hear in Jesus when he says, when you have a feast, don't invite people that you know are then going to invite you next time they have a feast. You need to invite the disadvantaged, those who cannot repay you in any way. Because you have been shown such great grace, you should be generous and gracious to others as well. And so, Naomi pronounces a blessing upon him that the Lord would bless him for his kindness. But what about whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead? I think we will see this as the story unfolds, as it progresses. I would, however, remind you of what Naomi said earlier in chapter 1, when she comes back and people are like, is this Naomi? Is this the delightful one? That's what her name means. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. I'm reminded of the conversation between Job and his wife after all his afflictions. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. 
Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? I told you when we looked at Naomi's statement that it was in fact a statement of faith. She did not blame the fates or fate. She did not blame karma, luck. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. She didn't blame her circumstances. To her, the Lord Almighty was in control. Now, why he allowed these things to happen, that's a different story. That's a different question. And I think oftentimes, perhaps we do not struggle with God as we should, because we do not attribute what happens in our lives to God himself. We're busy looking at other agents. That, In fact, it might be some form of Christian karma, or it might be just because of our circumstances. We find other explanations, because to say that this came from the hand of God would be really hard. It would be really hard to say that and to accept that we'd have to do a lot of struggling to get our minds around it. And we'd rather not struggle. So we ignore that and and we point the finger elsewhere. This is not the case with Naomi. She leaves home. Her husband leaves her. He dies. Her sons leave her. They die. It's not bad luck. It's not karma. This is what the Lord Almighty has done. And that she is a woman of faith is seen... In that when good things happen, she says, this is from the Lord too. That was and this is as well. I suspect that if, in fact, we don't want to struggle in the area of trouble, when things happen in our lives, we are less inclined to give God the credit when good things happen to us. For Naomi, it's not a problem. She knows God is in control. When bad things happen, when good things happen, this is God who is working in her life. In verses 21 and 22, the generosity is further described. If you look at verse 21, Then Ruth the Moabitess said, He even said to me, Stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. By the way, did you catch it? The beginning of verse number 21. Suddenly sees Ruth the Moabitess again. Did you see that? And I think it is to remind us, because we might be caught up in the excitement with Naomi, that Ruth is an outsider. And she is vulnerable. Thus we have Boaz saying, Stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. And we have Naomi saying, It is good for you, my daughter, to be with his girl, or to go with his girls. Because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. Boaz has indeed been gracious. But this is, in fact, a reflection of someone who appreciates the grace of God in his life. The storyteller closes this chapter with a summary, as he did with the first chapter. I say he, it may have been a woman. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Ruth follows the instructions that Naomi has given her. She follows the instructions that Boaz has given her to stay close to his servant girls. And she gleaned with them for seven weeks. Okay? 
that's what we should get from verse number 23. Because it was the beginning of barley harvest and the end of wheat harvest is seven weeks later. The end of April to the beginning of June, that is barley and then the wheat harvest. So what she did was not a one day thing. I mean, she got a lot. She got an ephah in one day. But she worked for seven weeks as a gleaner. Uh, certainly hard work. Hard work. But we see God providing, providing for these two widows during this harvest season as Ruth gleans. There's also a hint. I think it's implied. The storyteller wants to know that Ruth and Boaz probably saw each other again. It wasn't a one-time thing that they talked, but if she worked for seven weeks, then they probably saw each other again. And this will lead to what we come to see in the next chapter. The last statement, though, of the chapter, I find rather puzzling. And she lived with her mother-in-law. And you might say, well, yeah, I mean, where, where was she supposed to stay? A husband, perhaps? She's been there seven days working among the harvesters. She's single. She's a widow. She needs protection. She needs a husband. But at the end, we're coming to the end of the wheat harvest. Seven weeks later, she's still a widow. She's still living with Naomi. And the storyteller wants us to see that. Okay. Something I want you to consider as we leave today. The example of Boaz, I think, is outstanding. And it should guide us as Christians. What should guide our actions is not legalism. Uh, by the way, I must confess, it's not in my notes, but it's been troubling me. When I'm behind the wheel of a car, I'm an extreme legalist. Um, I've some, suddenly become super cop. I'm the policeman of the whole world. I'm correcting everyone who does a traffic infraction. Um, I tend not to be very gracious. It's just not right. I should be more like Boaz, who has a real sense of God's grace in his life, God's generosity to him, and therefore he is generous to others. As we deal with people, we need to ask ourselves, in this context, this situation where I'm talking to this person or dealing with this person, how am I supposed to give expression to the character of God and his covenant of grace? God has been gracious to me. God loves me. He has shown his love to me every day. As I'm dealing with this person, what aspect of the character of God am I supposed to show? I think we're more than happy enough to show God's anger or his judgment. Um, and yet, rarely do we hear of these things or read of these things in Scripture. It is God's grace, God's love, his kindness. Have you noticed, it's, it's not a universal maxim or truth, but it seems that people who have a lot of money don't share what they have. And those who don't have a lot of money tend to be more generous. It's one of those strange things. But I think those who don't have a lot appreciate what they have and appreciate that it has come as a result of the generosity of someone else. For many of them, the generosity of God. And since God has been generous to them, 
they can afford to be generous to others. Is it good to have a budget? Yes, it is. But Jesus said that when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That our survival does not depend upon us. It depends upon a gracious, generous God. And as God was generous to Boaz, so Boaz was to Ruth. And Ruth was to Naomi. She brought leftovers from lunch. In the same way as God has been gracious and loving to us, we are to be gracious and loving to those we meet every day. Let's pray together. Father, when things are going well, I think we are content to have a set of rules and regulations. The do's and don'ts. In time of need, we crave relationship. We crave closeness. Friendship. Love. Help us to see that it is because of your relationship with us. You've called us to be your children. That we are supposed to live in a particular way. But we should never separate that from the reality that you love us and you have called us. And just as you have been so generous and open-handed with us and gracious to us in spite of our many sins, we are to be gracious and kind to others. That as you have shown us grace, may we show grace to others. I thank you for the example of Boaz. Who was generous, more generous than he had to be by the law standards, and kind and protective of this foreigner, Ruth. May we learn from his example, but beyond that, may we learn from your example of your generosity to us, that even when we were aliens and strangers, You came after us. You rescued us from sin and adopted us into your family. And just like Ruth sitting down with the harvesters and being a part of the family, you have brought us together to be a part of your family. We thank you for that. Thank you for calling us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.